You are in the Grotto Pod. I am also in the Grotto Pod. I'm joined by Bridget Quinn, who is here in the Grotto Pod with me. Yep. We're all here in the Grotto Pod. It's a party in the Grotto Pod. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Grotto Pod. I'm not feeling super lively. i got to liven up. Well, let me fill you in, uh, Grotto Pod fans, on the state of my co-host BQ here. Uh, last week, <laughs> and she completed her first Ironman triathlon. No sexism implied. It is a brand name. It, it is a brand name. Although, maybe the brand is sexist. Oh, they definitely are, actually. Oh, really? Yeah. Bummer. Oh, well. Anyways, uh, you know, quick impressions of the Iron uh, person that you ran. <laughs> uh, I, I asked you earlier how you feel. You said fine. Feel fine. Yeah, you know I'm tired? Not because of doing the Ironman for 16 hours on Saturday. Today is Tuesday. Today is Tuesday. Because yesterday, Monday, I sat my ass in a chair. Yes, I'm going to say ass. Oh, if you geez. have to. Bring out the bongos. Bongo that. That's the way it is. <laughs> for, uh, let's see, I started at 7 and I ended at midnight. How many hours is that? Uh, that would be 17 hours oh my God. of so longer. editing and writing. Yes, that's what I did. Actually, I was preparing um, a week of lectures. Oh, oh boy. So anyway, boy, but oh they're boy. close to done. But I'm so tired and I didn't get enough sleep. Let me ask you this. Yeah. Uh, did you get your, did you achieve the, the Grotto Pod challenge of 500 words a day? I did not. But can I just plead the Iron Man? Is that not? I plead the Iron Man. It's like pleading the fifth, sort of. <laughs> because the days leading you don't up, incriminate yourself. it was so ridiculous. The amount of mm. preparation, the amount of driving. Well, and so I did not. I missed three days. So I'm three days behind. And the, actually, I missed Monday. I keep talking. Sorry. Go ahead. I missed ahead, Monday please. because I had please to do all this so I'm actually four days off, Ooh. and I have to tell everyone that Larry has not kept to the 500 words a day because he's writing like 1,500 words a day. But I have to admit, so I was gone this weekend, uh, the little beach trip there, and I was erratic, but mm. it was different. So I did sit in a coffee shop. I was a cliche, and it was fantastic. Oh. I just granted out. It's great. Uh, then a day I didn't do anything. Uh-huh. And then I did, but it was more editing. I went back and I was just Editing's doing some allowed. rewrite. Got back on it last night. Here's the problem. And, you know, all of this is for you, GrottoPod listeners. We want to hear your stories, too, about yeah, the 500-word challenge. Send them to GrottoPod at gmail.com. We'd love to hear. Or uh, tweet them. Or tweet them to uh, at the GrottoPod. Um, we want to hear how you're doing. But I have found that, unfortunately, my best time for writing is 10.30 p.m. Why is that unfortunate? Because I don't sleep later than 7.00. So I start going last night. Oh. I was like, boom, 3,000 words. It's oh, midnight. 3,000 words? And it's words? not like you can sleep, right? That so, is insane. So that, that beats Stephen King. Yeah, but his stuff gets published. So there's that. It could happen. Today on the Grotto Pod. Yes. Our guest is the intense Roberto Lovato. He gets published, let me tell you. He gets published like mad. Because um, he's a journalist, that's one thing. So he's got actual gigs happening. He's a capital J journalist. And when capital I went J, uh, yeah. looking at his bio, I started to write down the places he'd been published. And then it seemed ridiculous because yeah. he's been published everywhere. Yeah. I and mean, seriously, places. big time. New York Times, yep. mm-hmm. that caliber of stuff. Uh, he has a Pulitzer Center. He recently received a Pulitzer Center grant, uh, which I didn't even know existed. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Because you're not up for those. I know. To report on drug wars in El Salvador. So this is his Just beat. a little something. Right. His beat is is um, Latin America, uh, or he calls it America with the uh, accent over the E, sort of combining North America and South America. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, looks into border issues, uh, immigration issues, drug war issues. 
Um, and he has a side business. I saw this on his website. It sort of surprised me because we know Roberto. He's a grotto guy. Yeah. Uh, he's around. We've hung out. He's soft spoken, but very, very intense. Yeah. Like you can feel the energy behind his words. And occasionally awesome. I'll, I'll say, Hey, you know, how was your weekend? Go, oh yeah. You know, I was embedded with a drug cartel. And he doesn't really. Once I swear to you, that's what it, cause I was like, yeah, <laughs> I, I, I uh, hung out with my I dog it. and did a flute crossword puzzle. <laughs> Yeah, he's, uh, doing, he's doing the real, real journalism. He is doing yeah. the real hard work, and that is what we were really compelled by yeah. uh, to find out the story behind the man. Uh, what you know, we, we sort of flirted with this when we had Chris Cook in here a while ago. You know, what makes a writer decide to take a really difficult and, in this case, risky yeah, road? The hard road, for sure. Uh, a couple months ago, I remember he came in here, and a friend of his had been killed, and I, I guess that's killed in the line of duty, right? Oh, for sure, a yeah. Mexican journalist, a journalist yeah. who, had, who had been taken out. Uh, so we want to talk about that a little bit, but he has a sidelight, and this really is – I don't know if we're going to talk about this, but it is interesting. He um, he develops and implements media, cultural, and political strategies for people. Oh, yes. I did know Does that. Does a little, the little yeah. consulting there. Oh, man. He's like our man in Washington. Oh, oh, well, my man in Washington. I'll say that. I don't want to speak for you, but I think he is in, – In what sense? Lefty. Oh, 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 okay. Super lefty. Well – I don't even think he's lefty. Yeah? Because he was like disgusted. Southie? He's disgusted. <laughs> He's off the chart. He was disgusted with Obama, even. He was like, ah, everyone thought I'd be pro-Obama, but ah, I don't like that guy. But he has really good points, I think. I, and I mean, he has really smart ways of looking at things that I had not considered, where I'm like, whoa, dude. And and so, you know, he's bringing that energy and that uh, knowledge mm-hmm. to people who need it. Well, he's no zealot. I mean, I don't want to paint yeah, a picture yeah, yeah. that he's some kind of zealot. No, because he's just a very he's not just like thoughtful, a intense dude. Believer by faith. He's got the stats and the... I guess the strategy that I am compelled by when he explains it. So we set this all up for you. And now, you know, I I hope you're as compelled as we are to kind of dig into this guy and figure out uh, who he is and and what he... And what he does for fun. What he does for fun. He said he wanted to talk about the lighter side. I know. I want to hear about the lighter side. And I have hung out with him and it has been fun. I can see that. I definitely can. uh, There was not, you know, nary a hair follicle between the two of us, but it was fun. (laughs) And glasses. Yeah, a lot of glasses going on. You guys are on. like brothers. Oh, entirely different ethnicities. Yeah. So let's go get him. I know he's out there waiting for us. Oh, yep. look, and we're on time. Awesome. Yes, we're, we're killing it. it. All right, let's go get him. Get ready. Intensity will happen. And now. levity. And levity. Okay. Now. Uh, Roberto just said that he knows Vigo Mortensen. Yeah, we met... Uh, a few years ago in uh, some political stuff. You know, he's from Argentina. He grew up in Argentina. Oh, he did? Yeah. Uh, so I thought he, he was... speaks perfect Spanish. And he's, he's got he's awesome a perfect man, politics. <laughs> and a lot of my friends would love me to uh, introduce. I don't know him that well to hook him up or uh-huh. introduce him, but I, you know, I've met him and talked with him. And, you know, we shared ideas. When you talk, do you talk in English or in Spanish? Both. I love it, that. Yeah, he speaks like... Perfect. He so grew up he, there. He grew up in Argentina. I didn't realize that. I thought he was Danish. Vico Mortensen is a super Danish name. <clears throat> yeah, I'm sure. So you you're know. saying it's sort of a mistake that God made making him a beautiful man. Why is that a mistake? Why is That's the well, because he doesn't, he doesn't live his life as though he's a beautiful man. Like when he was married to Exine, I was like, really? Exine and this guy? Like he's this stud. <sighs> She's the greatest. She's insane. I know. Well, Do you know true. of whom we speak? No, no. I just think that the... Saying that I look like Viggo Mortensen is a 
just fatal error on people's part. <laughs> I don't know. People just judge me beforehand. Welcome yeah. to the Grotto Pod. Thank you. Roberto Hi. Lovato, uh, one of my favorite Grotto people. You know, and during our my fawning intro, I left out one thing that I was talking to Bridget about. And that is, you're a really good writer. <laughs> it's true. And I say that as I sort of, I guess it's a bias. I'm a you know, fiction writer or creative nonfiction writer. Journalist, to me, I'm like, well, it's a different job. It's usually, you know, the writing might not be the same as I'm used to. But you're, it's so compelling. It is so fully enveloping. It's fantastic. Oh, you're uh, honoring me. I'm uh, humbled <laughs> by what you're saying sincerely. I, I'm not lying, man. Thank not you. at all. But can you say a little bit about that? I mean, what what is it that you bring to journalism that makes it so compelling as writing? Do at you this, think at this point in my uh, writing life, I'm not I'm not entirely a journalist anymore. I'm morphing into something else. I had, and I I kid you not, I was call I was talking to a friend just a few days ago, and I was in this you know a little bit of a crisis moment like we all have in the. Uh, in this current age, and, uh, you know, crying and then getting over it. And then my, you know, I tell my friend what's going on with me, and she says, hey, but what are you going to do with, with with where you're going with these ideas and feelings you've got? And I was like, you know, I was, gonna, about, I was about to answer when, I kid you not, on this sunny day, this black uh, butterfly with flaming orange edges around the wings lands right on my solar plexus. Whoa! Oh and, my gosh! And and I was like, oh my god! There's my answer. It's coming. F- it's to land on myself. And so where I'm going with the writing now? On your heart is is in my heart, in myself. Our heart is our mm-hmm. a lot of ourself. Our body is too. Well, you've never shied away from including yourself in the story, so it's not that big of a. Actually, it, if my trajectory begins in 2004. Okay, as Let's a writer. Let's go back further than that because okay. I think in addition to – your story is, is got a lot of parallel tracks. In addition to your development as a writer, there's your development as, as a politically aware being. And there's all the stuff that went into your upbringing that really made you what you are now. Now, you grew up in San Francisco? I grew up on 25th and Folsom down the street from the projects. And back when San Francisco was kind of a wonderland that people are still marveling about when you look at, like, say, the murals, mm-hmm. right. or you listen to Carlos Santana's music, right. you're listening and you're looking at the color and the music of the neighborhood that I grew up in mm-hmm. in the 1970s. My brother went to school with Carlos Santana, Mission High School, which is where I went to school. So, you know, I grew up, my father was a janitor, my mom was a maid, So I, I, and I used to go help my mom clean Hyatt Regency Hotel down here on Market, and I used to clean up rich people's poop, basically. And so, you you know, that informs a certain perspective. You can only look up from the poop, right? It definitely informs a perspective. And what gets you f- to feel, as you're cleaning poo, uh, empowered enough to choose the track you chose? Um, or, or is it angry enough? Well, there's a mix of a lot of things. There's, I think in my younger years, it was just like a lot of us were rebellious and angry. Uh, and I rebelled against whatever I could. <laughs> what do you got? <laughs> what do you got? Yeah. <laughs> you know, and then... Uh, but do you think growing up in the mission, would... I mean, seeing all that, because you, you mentioned art, music, art, mm-hmm. murals, do you think that gave you a picture of where that rebellion could go? Well, when I was at my most radical moment in, you know, in my 20s, 
you know, I was living here, and then I went to El Salvador during the war. Remember, my family's from El Salvador, by mm-hmm. the way. That's another factor. It's a key factor. It's oh, a yeah. key factor. Going, yeah. being umbilically connected to this country that you've and you've done a lot of work there. Has been steeped in what most writers will frame as a heart of darkness narrative, right? And my whole thing has been, you could summarize and say, my mission as a writer has been to find the heart in the darkness. We seem to forget that often. Mm-hmm. We talk about people, about Latinos generally. And uh, Salvadorans in particular, just look at who Donald Trump is trying to avert a crisis with, you know, these last few days with the MS-13, the Salvadoran gangs, who I've interviewed and who are have a monstrous element to them. Mm-hmm. But then so does Donald Trump, right? I mean, so... Yeah, this is the world. So, uh, you know, I think being Salvadoran really... Uh, really informs who I am and what I write and what I've chosen to write about. I, I was really angry at it as a kid. So but how, I, and, I, and people would ask me, hey, but what about beauty and music? And, ah, you know, that's just for the... For the, for the um, it seems soft Revolucionarios de, de escritorio, the, the desktop revolutionaries. Uh, Only later, after, say, the war in El Salvador, do I, you know, kind of go into this introspective process that will happen to people after a war, after Vietnam, after whatever, you kind of go, well, who the hell am I after that? So you pictured yourself a warrior. Well, somewhat, in some ways. And, uh, and when you were rebelling, how did that manifest itself? It started off being the one kid in the family that went against the rules of the authorities in the house, calling out the authorities when they were doing things that the children didn't, the child didn't like, but only one of them spoke. I mean, I found out Gives you an example. I found out kind of later in life that my father was a witness to this. Mm. One of the worst massacres in Latin American history. He didn't say anything for 75 years. So then I'm kind of the archaeologist, the detective, the rebel, going in looking for things that will tell me who I am and why I feel like the poet's at half dead. So I find out my dad witnessed this thing, and it is, it's called La Matanza, the massacre, the great massacre. Something like twenty to 50,000 people were killed mm-hmm. in a matter of a few weeks in a country the size of Massachusetts. So my dad turned out to have witnessed this and didn't say anything for 75 years. And so there's this deep, deeper level that, that that's informing my anger. Right. Some psychologists will call it intergenerational traumatic displacement. And so then I went and I studied, for example, the Jewish experience of violence. And the way that this one scholar studied the children who witnessed the children of Holocaust survivors. Right. And in a lot of these families, inevitably, the there was this one child and these families wouldn't say anything. They didn't want to right burden their burden their kids, even though they didn't realize that maybe the silence burdened them even more. Because as I say in, in, in something I'm writing right now, the. The monsters grow in the dark. <laughs> oh, but, you nice. know, they're now finding that there's. they think there's actually genetic changes. Yeah. It's mm-hmm. not just in the family dynamic. Yeah. <clears throat> but you had said you started rebelling against the family itself. Yeah. And and then I, you know, got into a, a clique and I got involved in certain kinds of crime, stealing, beating, fighting, stealing cars, taking out girls so and just stolen a, cars. Just and a street kid. As, a thing as that, one will. Yeah. As one does in the mission in, 19, in the 1980s. 80s. 80s. Oh, yeah. 1980s. In the 1980s. And so low riding, 
Um, Dude, so, you're so sexy right now. It's, see, I know it's terrible. I, I'm terrified. That's like the as 80s a, dream. As a, as a nerdy 80s Jewish kid, I'm scared to death. I'm not going in that neighborhood. I'm the opposite. I'm like, oh, Roberto. I'm scared of you guys. <laughs> <laughs> um, Let's keep it PG here, ladies and gentlemen. All right, all right, all right. All right, all right. <laughs> the gr- except when Joe Loy is here, the grotto pot is always PG. I rebelled so much that I, after I got into a certain lifestyle that was dangerous for me, I became a born-again Christian. You know, that's a tall order for someone coming, growing up in a household of generations of Catholics. Catholics. But Joe had the same experience. I had to be, I had, so I had, so Jesus was like my superhero throughout that, my childhood. Is that also a form of rebellion? I, I did use it as a form of rebellion because I grabbed, I learned that Bible, I read all of it, and I used that Bible to judge Family, friends, everyone. So, was this All part of liberation theology? No, no, no. It was, was your own thing. This was looking back more like enslavement theology yeah. because I actually got on my knees mm-hmm. in 1984 and prayed for the election of Ronald Wilson Reagan. Because? Because he was, quote unquote, a Christian. Right on abortion at that time. Oh, oh. whoa, dude, you I, are I blowing my mind. Yeah, right I didn't now. go into the church. To find Reagan, I got into the church to get out of the life that I was in. Right. And because I loved the Word of God, which I had read since childhood. So what you did in a to, to a uh, 10,000-foot viewer, they would think, well, this is a success story. Look, this guy was running around, stealing cars. Now look at him. He's an upstanding citizen. He goes to church. Good Votes work. Republican? Stages, militant theater on the streets of 24th and Mission. Militant um, Christian theater? Yeah, militant yeah. Christian theater. I mean, if you look at the interpretation of the Bible of evangelical churches then and now, mm-hmm. you have an, what I would call a violent militant interpretation of the Bible. You know, um, ye shall not be yoked with unbelievers. You know, mm. it's power in the blood. You know, and, and, and Jesus is bringing you know, the apocalypse. Right? This is like a very... It's an angry Bible. Interpretation. A very angry God yeah. for a very... I thought the angry you know, God was our, our Old Testament God. No, I, I would, thought he lightened I would say up the by God, the time well, he Well, no, the, the Gospels has some pretty angry Jesus moments, but mm-hmm. some pretty transcendently, amazingly um, not violent moments as well. Absolutely. My love of the Word yeah. begins yeah. and ends in the Bible. And at, and at this time, are you imagining yourself eventually as a writer, or is it completely off the table? It's completely off the table, but I'm, you know, looking back, and I'm writing about this now, is... My love of words begins with the love of Jesus and the love of the Bible and the love of the Word of God that kind of, despite my rebellion within the house, I was a closet thinker, a closet reader. And a seeker. I guess. You know, I would say a finder. Mean, well, a finder too. Finder's but, keeper. But there definitely seems to be a, a, a through line that you're looking for something. Yeah. I have, to, I have truth. to ask, and this may be uh, crossing crossing a line, but uh, are you still evangelical? Because I noticed you're no, wearing no, a scapula, no. and no, that's no, not no. This very. Is, uh, this is something my now deceased mom gave me. Um, it's a Catholic. Right. Uh, that's why I thought you were Catholic. Symbol of Saint Jude, right. who's the you know the saint of lost causes, causes yeah. oh, and other things. People, you know, and so my mom wasn't saying I was a lost cause. She was just <laughs> praying without ceasing to 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 God, to Jesus, but also to Saint Jude on my behalf and so and, and my mom passed and so now I I keep this as a, close to you. As, as a reminder that she's with me and that I'm protected throughout there must have been some knockdown drag out arguments in your house then if your parents were devout <laughs> and so were you yeah I was more than devout I was hardcore militant yeah 
And that's where I learned to be a militant in the church. <clears throat> I'm so fascinated that it's, it's evangelical, though, because the 80s, I can see militancy in liberation theology. Yeah, but but we're talking the early 80s. Yeah. Okay. The war was starting in the early 80s in El yeah. Salvador. I wasn't really noticing except to see the bunch of family coming from mm-hmm. the war, fleeing as right. refugees and going over there and seeing things, hearing bombs go off and, you know, having some sense. But really, I was, you know, in my teens in the in the early 80s right. and had to go through that until the mid-80s when I started, I, you know, I had to be free of the church. <laughs> you went to El Salvador to be free of the church? No, I, I went, first I went to Nyack, New York to a retreat center that my church had. I told them I was going to a spiritual retreat, and I came back, and they, they kind of asked me, well, how'd your retreat go? I said, great. You know, I don't believe in your God anymore. I love it. <laughs> it worked great for me, not for you so much. Yes, uh, great. So then I you know, I went on a road trip to Nicaragua and El Salvador, and I started becoming more conscious. I was at Berkeley. I was arguing with my professors before this about, as a born-again Christian, and taking, like, oh, German, whoa. German philosophy my, classes. My head is exploding right now. <laughs> as I'm sure the professor's head's exploding. Wait a minute. <laughs> no, no, they, their head didn't explode. They were calmly deflating every oh. ideological... But did you, yeah. did you then come back it's and argue the other side? It's the Berkeley student. I went back. I actually got questioned by the authorities in the church to say, Brother, why are you reading... Nietzsche? Why are you reading Freud? Why are you reading Marx? Mm-hmm. Well, we don't know the arguments of our adversaries. We don't know our own arguments. So, um, you know, they said, hey, that's dangerous, brother. And I was like, okay, well, i got to get out of this thing. Yeah, I mean, and Well, thinking is a little dangerous. Well, and given yeah. that we've just discussed how you're a seeker of the truth, <laughs> I don't see how you could shut down one side and say, I've got the truth. Yeah, although, you know, I, I know... I, I I have an intimate relationship with pigheadedness in my past. You know, <laughs> my uh, I mean, you asked about my conflicts with my parents. I mean, my my mother would say, you know, back then, even after I was a Christian, this is to give, give you some sense of how hardcore I was. She says, you know, when we would start talking about my evangelical past, she would say, "Ni eso ni lo quiero ver en pintura. I don't even want to see that in uh, painting." I don't want to hear about it. It was that bad for her. It was that bad for them and for anybody uh, around me. That's why some of my most cherished friendships now are people that somehow managed to see behind the 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 dogmatic, militant, angry, evangelical admirer of, um, what's his name? Uh, Jerry Falwell. No, no, not Jerry Falwell. Yeah. I just threw that. I forget. I forget his name now, but I'll remember. One of those guys. But you traded that in uh, Mm -hmm. for a different kind of militancy. I heard you once on the phone explaining to someone that before you were a journalist, you were a militant. Yeah, I was militantly, I was a militant Christian. And then I took to, you know, fighting U.S. policy militantly, you know, helping refugees here. Then I decided to go down to El Salvador Mm -hmm. to work with displaced and refugee communities. And it you know, to do that, you have to go into the war zones. Mm-hmm. And to do that, you have to put yourself in the eye of the storm of a basically a fascist dictatorship, a military dictatorship. And so I was uh, I was crazy. So, And basically to do that, too, and this is something we began discussing off mic, mm-hmm. you put yourself in directly in danger, physical danger. I don't uh, – you know, that's interesting. I think there's a – I've asked friends who have a lot of experience with war. And I think there is a in there is a side of us when a bullet's coming at you. There's a part of you that will either go into mm. the eye of the bullet, 
or, or run in a split it. second run away from it. And which do you think you are? At the, as a child, as a young, as an adolescent, mm-hmm. I think I had a little bit of Thanatos, the death instinct, mm-hmm. combined with a desire for justice and truth. Uh, and now as an adult, it's completely leaning <laughs> towards life, but was love, it a, and, and beauty. Was it a sense then the idea that you could get hurt didn't occur to you, or was it you just didn't care? Did you feel indestructible? No, I mean, there's an element of feeling indestructible that goes with youth. Right. I felt like I wanted to go and do something right, whatever the cost. Mm -hmm. I have to say, I think the most terrifying bit of journalism I ever read was a two-part story in The New Yorker in the 80s about a massacre in El Salvador. In Mosote. Yeah. I I mean, it it was... Mark Downer. Absolutely chilling I mean, almost like you couldn't stop reading, mm-hmm. but you were hoping you wouldn't keep reading. Yeah, there was a moment in my life where I couldn't read because I wouldn't stop crying. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. That I can, I can. That's understand why. That. I mean, that's why I love the word. Yeah. You know, because now, years later, now thirty almost years later, I'm now at a stage where I feel like. I've got a little bit of experience, and I want to pass on whatever Jedi knowledge I have. So do you still think the word is spiritual? Absolutely. I was just in San Quentin. Yeah. I was just in San Quentin. They wanted me to, and they were asking me questions about, well, you know, why do you write? And, you know, and I explained to them my love of the word with the Bible, but then I've transcended that and just love of words generally. And um, how... How I, I there's a there's a, I never thought I'd say this, but I mean, words saved my life. I could have, I could have put a bullet in my head. Because you were at a low point. Because I was at a low point after the war. After you see, you see the most ignoble, awful. You know, your 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 the tree of knowledge just got hit by a bolt of thunder and lands right on you, and you're like, God damn, mm-hmm. this is the world I live in. Well, is there a sense too when you come back from a from a, an experience that's that intense? Did you find that everyday life was insufferably mundane? No, no. Explain. I- initially, there was a de- there's a depression that happens because you're right. processing stuff that you don't really process when you're in the middle of this intensity. Mm-hmm. Over time, you start processing and you go through, at least me, I can only speak for me, I can't speak for others, but I went through a depression and trying to find who I was. And uh, when I wasn't a Christian and I wasn't, you know, kind of, you know, dealing with these refugee issues... Who am I in time of peace? I mean, then, then you kind of like start getting more focused. You read, you, and you realize, well, actually, the chaos is perpetual. <laughs> it's always there. The dark. I mean, like people, people are talking now and all depressed about Donald Trump, mm-hmm. and it's like this darkness descending on. And I'm like, hey, man, you know, I've just spent the last four years going into mass graves and. Mm-hmm. And, and, and looking at these horrific things in Mexico, in Central America, and they all have the fingerprints of the United States of America on them, made in America. So these so, guys, you so say, so where, where have you been? Darkness has descended. Welcome to the party. Yeah, yeah. Um, That's interesting. <clears throat> so again, we still got some time to go before two thousand and four, when the light goes on and you become. Is that when you began, began writing professionally? That's when I decided to become a writer. I was always writing in my little, mm-hmm. in the in the humidity of the secrets under my. But you're uh, so, okay. So you're always writing, and I'm you're always, always in love with words. Mm-hmm. But it hasn't occurred to you yet that this is a way to pursue truth. Have you ever, have you ever, have you ever, have you ever uh, read that that alleged quote attributed to Goethe? 
No. Yes. When, 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 when you commit. Uh, action has magic in it. Or something. Yeah, it has magic in it. Providence. Yeah. yeah. Well, it turns out that Goethe didn't say yes, that. Yes, I know. Yeah. It's <laughs> like, a, it's a beautiful, but still, it doesn't matter because it's yeah. still beautiful. Just yeah. having it the out point, there is good. The point is that commitment organizes providence on your behalf. I would say commitment organizes your subconscious on your behalf. Once I committed to writing, instead of kind of flirting and kind of dating Had you been things, flirting with it for a while? I had been flirting my whole life with, with and were you, writing. And I'm assuming you're always a big reader. Yeah, always. But always, what, what kind of stuff? Like I, not just Marx and Nietzsche, right. but what did Jules you... Jules Verne. Yeah, Okay, cool. yeah. Jules Verne, I was reading, uh, you know, J.D. Salinger, I was reading... Uh, Huckleberry Finn. I was reading uh, stuff in Spanish, cheap novellas in Spanish that my mom would leave around the house. I'd read the Catholic encyclopedia that nobody in my house read except me. Those are some good stories. They're great stories. The Bible is full of rape and violence and <laughs> treachery and all kinds of like really quote unquote literary stuff. Uh huh. So um, I also have. The, had the good fortune that because my father worked for the airlines and my mom worked for the hotel, they gave me these two wings, right? Mm-hmm. Wow, so you could travel? I could travel. all. I grew up down the street from the projects, one of the roughest places in San Francisco at that time in the oh, 70s. Those, yeah, those projects. Yeah, it's, they it's were, been you know, there's, YouTube videos, there's YouTube videos about how bad things were. Mm-hmm. I've gone back just to remember how bad things were, <laughs> besides my own scars, right? <laughs> so, long story short, my Father's, my mom's working at Hyatt Regency gave me a discount in hotels, gave us a discount, and my dad's working for United gave me free airline tickets. So most of my friends had not traveled within a 60 mile radius, beyond outside a 60 of, mile outside radius, of the city. outside of the projects and outside of Folsom Street, mm-hmm. while me got to travel to Rome. Spain, oh, Mexico, New York. Did you have any siblings or was it just... Yeah, I'm the youngest. Of, okay. Of how many? Four. Oh, so everyone's traveling. Mm, mostly they, me and my if mom. If they want to. My mom and I were the ones who most took advantage of it. You know, in my... So cool. Yeah, so I, I grew up, you know, like uh, like Shakespeare said, right? I had rich eyes and poor hands. <laughs> did, did, but did you find that did this feeling sort of make you... I don't want to say outcast, but sort of at odds with your peers. Absolutely, because and it was complicated because I was designated "quote unquote" gifted in the San Francisco mm-hmm. Unified School District, mm-hmm. like in the second or third grade. Yeah, once they throw that tag, once on, they yeah. throw that label, on, hey, you're different from where you come from, and they start to track you really. And they start hard. to track you, and they send you to bus you out to Reading Elementary and in in in, in uh, over near Oak <coughs> Street or to Marina Junior High School mm-hmm. until I rebelled in the sixth grade. And that from the sixth grade through high school, my grades were worthless. Let me give you the flip side of that. Because I got the same tag when we moved to Orange County. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to go to that gifted kid's school as fast as I could because nobody wanted to beat me up there. It was a completely different experience. Yeah. I was one of the only Latino kids and one of the only working class kids. In, in San those. Francisco. Think about that. Yeah. So it's interesting, though, the, the, the little things in someone's personal history that can completely change the scope of it. If your father hadn't had those those vouchers and your mom hadn't had those vouchers, you never would have gone these places. Yeah, they gave me my levity, <laughs> my love of levity. Mm-hmm. I write, I've written a, a, kind of an homage to uh, Italo Calvino. You ever, and if you ever have a chance to read or the listeners have a, want to read a magnificent essay, it's called Lightness. It's in the uh, memos for the 
Next Millennium book by uh, Calvino when he delivers the um, Charles Norton lectures in Boston, I believe. And so this one essay, Lightness, is just so beautiful because he's at, at the end of his game, 40 years after becoming a writer, describing what for him makes for great literature. And he, for him, one of the most important was lightness, the ability to take gravity and weight out of, it was just like sculpting, right? Where you, you kind of like take chunks of... <coughs> Well, of, and, and that's of of, of mud or, or or rock mm-hmm. to you know to to do what Rodin did, right? It's interesting that that is something that you would key on, given the weight of the subjects that you write about. Yeah, but I grew up early on. I grew up Salvadoran. And I guess one of the advantages is I would never had to. I never had to wake up to Donald Trump in two thousand seventeen. I knew Donald Trump from day one. Because hmm. <laughs> the world that created Donald Trump was around long before oh, I see. 2017. And so, um, you know, I mean, being Salvadorian is like being Jewish. is a heavy yeah. element to it. And you can either ignore that heaviness or you can inch into it in a way that doesn't take you to that place that Nietzsche says where the abyss destroys you. I see. Or... I see your point, because what are we Jews known for? Sense of humor. But also think about the yeah. great Jewish American writers like uh, Philip Roth and Saul mm-hmm. Bellow. There's, there's just a... Is Saul Bellow yeah, yeah. American? Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, he, there is this... It's not, it's not humor. There's something, there's something about their writing that is mm-hmm. both very intense and can deal with incredibly intense topics. Like there's that Philip Roth book, um, The Ghost Writer, about Anne Frank, who's actually lived through the Holocaust. And, yeah. But mm-hmm. there's a, there is something light in it that yeah, makes it very... Primo Levy. Yeah, Primo yeah. Levy. Was he in Auschwitz, but he still kept some humor. himself. And, and, that's, and, and, I mean, that's, that's always been... I've kind of studied this a little bit. I mean, that's, that's a big deal to us. You know, if you're not laughing, you're crying, so... We choose yep. laughing. And I think they don't have to be separate. I think right, I agree. the United yep. States, we separate, you know, especially like in California. We're famous for being on the other side of the Appalachians where there's no gravity. There's no history here. There's just sun and fun. Lotus land. <laughs> yeah. Like, Lotus you know, land. Like, that's why I love a writer like you know, Mike Davis. Mm. Cadillac he writes Desert. about Los yeah. Angeles. Yeah. Well, that's Mark Reisner. What did Mike Davis, City of Courts? Mike Davis wrote, Mike, Mike Davis wrote City of Courts, okay. a magnificent writer, a friend of mine, mm-hmm. who was one of the people, along with uh, Hector Tobar and uh, Ruben Martinez, to influence me when I lived in L.A., to commit. They said, man, you've got some stories. I was like, That's hey, so you, know great. you know what? You're actually right. I think I, I think I do have some stories. So, I'm sorry. I was distracted by buzzing in my ear. But, yes. <laughs> <laughs> You always had stories. At what point do you saw it? And, and, but when you chose, the type of writing you chose to go into wasn't necessarily you telling stories that you had. It was mm-hmm. you tracking down stories. Well, I first, I, I first wanted to be a journalist because mm-hmm. um, that was a way to get paid to write. Paycheck, yep. And, you know, and, I, and I actually, I mean, you know, I was also an activist in a previous life, and I learned about something called strategy. I actually went out unbeknownst to most of my leftist friends. I got a master's in business. <laughs> Why? You just, because, you just said it on a podcast. Yeah, because I, I looked at, like, a lot of Latino writers. I made a study of them, and I was questioning why is so much that passes for Latino and And it's... Uh, I was kind of surprised since you hadn't yet. Yeah, well... But you've been writing it. I've been writing it now. 
Yeah. Mm, I see. I've been writing it now. Yeah, maybe we should talk about that a little bit because uh-huh. um, Bridget was telling me about it beforehand, and it's it's a memoir, but it's not a straight memoir, right? Yeah, it's kind of what they call hybrid. Okay. I there's love a, that. That's my favorite. You, you ever read Vivian Gornick? If, those of you that are yes, Vivian Gornick. Those of you are out there that are uh, aspiring writers and not creative nonfiction writers, you must read. Um, Vivian Gornick's The Situation in the Story. Where it's everything. It's everything. It's everything. Absolutely. At one level, you got the situation, which is in the present, kind of for me, me as a journalist and writer, kind of going across this 2,000-mile landscape of pocked with mass graves of with the remains of Salvadorans. Mm-hmm. So the mass graves have a story in them. Mm-hmm. They have a lot of stories in them. So, But at a deeper level, the story is my search for a part of my father that I never knew until way late in life. And so, uh, I, you know, I don't want to give away the whole thing, but... Uh, so good. Uh, 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 you know, I'm learning this, is and there's a point where those two cross, where the situation and the story, and hopefully that's a story where people, the reader goes, boom. Mm-hmm. But it's, my ambition is to help bring the image of Salvadorans in particular, and Latinos in many ways, out of the darkness, kind of, that we're immersed in. And so and that's a darkness of ignorance. It's a stereotype, and there's racism about it. I mean, just look at Trump talking about MS-13. Mm-hmm. Well, and so we started this podcast talking about what I thought was kind of your a lifelong search for truth. Mm-hmm. And it seems like this is an extension of that. Or is this the culmination of it? Both. Like, we're all kind of young to reach culminations, though, huh? I don't know. I think, I mean, gee, somebody like... Rambo culminated in the 20s. 23 or something, yeah. <laughs> and he sure as hell disorganized our senses even to this day. But he, how long did he live? 23? Yeah. I don't know. Maybe not even that old. That's I what know. I mean. It's young, yeah. So it, it, it's... But, but I also think it is in a way a culmination of your story because it's where your story and your father's are going to intersect. Yeah. Mm. And my father's... And it, yeah, it's absolutely a culmination because um, I, I never... You know, I, I, I never thought I'd believe what Aristotle or other people have written about the cathartic effect of writing. Mm. I thought that was BS when I first heard it. How long, poetics. So how long after you started writing professionally did you stop thinking that was BS? The moment the moment I committed, actually. Mm-hmm. The moment I committed, I realized, wow. So this abstract word thing that I've always loved actually matters as much as the material kind of harsh and beautiful realities that I know on the material world. And do you think that's a that's a, an unusual attitude for a journalist? I mean, you seem I mean, to I, put, I'm not trained as a journalist. Right. I mean, well, maybe that's and, why you arrived I, at I've that. I've never fully embraced, to be completely honest, the... But I have to say this. The reason Roberto is not full of shit right now is because he has grasped the reality of the material world mm-hmm. and transformed it through the word. It's when you're 19 years old and living this airy-fairy, I'm going to be Rambo, I think that there isn't real catharsis, that the word isn't real in that same way. Well, I mean, I'm really moved by what you're saying, and it's because you have met the world, not just the word. Well, it's funny. I mean, I hate to go really Rambo on us. Yeah, do it. <laughs> Rambo. Or Rambo. Or Rambo. Or Rambo. Or Rambo. No, but I'm going hard on Rambo, but like, Actually, when I was teaching, when I teach like strategy, I, I teach. I use Rambo mm-hmm. in to what teach way? strategy. Well, his whole thing about the poet's mission to disorganize the mm-hmm. senses, right? I mean, I compare him and contrast him with 
a guy named Edward Bernays, the nephew of Sigmund Freud, the person that brought us public relations. Yeah, I've heard that. I've heard that story just that far before. So I put those two together. Like this guy, these elite guys are here organizing our senses so we buy more, so we support war more, so that we don't question the capitalist system in the least. This young romantic poet was the entire complete opposite about disorganizing the census. And this is used in like MFA programs and, and the teaching of literature. And I went back and I actually looked at where did Rambeau come up with this? How did he come up with this? And guess where he, he when he writing this? He, he, that, that, that disorganization of the census phrase comes out in a letter he wrote right in the middle of the Paris Commune mm-hmm. when it's being bombed. So this young man, this young brilliant poet is looking at you know, the body parts flying, the tragedy the bleeding onto the floor the pain and suffering of people sacrificing their lives for a higher good and being killed and destroyed by it by the French government so that's where he comes up with the disorganization of the sense but you don't get that in traditional literary like and in fact, when I was 19, I just thought that meant to drink more. Yeah, <laughs> I'm yeah. not kidding. That well, is what I thought. I thought that's what Rambo was saying, too. I mean, it, it could apply to that, too, but he was, it was a very particular context in which he came up. I don't think, I'm not like my former teachers in the rhetoric department at Berkeley who were organizing my senses to solely focus on the text. Mm-hmm. I find that dangerous. You know, especially at a time like this where... It's also totalitarian. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, listening to you talk about Rimbaud, him experiencing those things. Now, you've experienced all kinds of horrific things. Like, I like to joke. I was telling Bridget, I like to joke with you. What did you do last weekend, Roberto? Yeah, you know, I was embedded with a drug cartel. I'm like, yeah, I did a few crossword puzzles. But um, having seen all these things has to disorganize your mind and has to impact you in a way. Absolutely. That's where Nietzsche proves correct. You look far enough, you look long enough at the abyss and the abyss is going to look back at you. And that's where it gets, where your head could blow up like in that movie Scanners, remember that? Yeah, I do actually. I I felt like that from all the... Right, so you go in to find the truth, but you don't count on, what you don't count on is how it's going to impact you just being there. Even more than that, for me at least, you encounter shit. You know what? I got some darkness, too. Mm-hmm. Oh. And I think that's kind of the journey I think we have to go on as a country right now. Um, but that's hopeful. That makes me feel a little yeah, hopeful. Yeah, yeah. I think Donald Trump in that way is a cosmic gift. <laughs> I've never right? heard him referred to as a cosmic yeah, gift Yeah, yeah. In terms of, like, the, the Donald Trump doesn't come deus ex machina, right? Mm-hmm. He comes organically from our the soil. history of the United States. Right. And then becomes this kind of inorganic plastic thing. But, you know, he arises organically out of U.S. history, but somehow we're narrating him as if he's not. When, when I see Donald Trump, I see the product of a country that has refused to look at its shadow. What, what Jung called the shadow. <coughs> Carl so, Jung. So you think getting, getting obsessed with Trump, that guy, do you think that is distracting? At, at one level, yes. I think it... it or, or to view Obama as the, you the know, savior, the savior or something, which is dangerous. I mean, Obama. Just I just point people to Mexico. Mm-hmm. Mexico has lost almost two hundred thousand people in the past since two thousand six. So most of those people were um, killed on Obama's watch, 
many of them, thousands of them, were killed by the Mexican government that disappeared the 43 mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and disappeared thousands and killed thousands with U.S. aid provided by Bush and then Obama and now Trump. So a country, so that's not happening way down in Venezuela where they don't have any mass graves, but that's the big crisis in the in the hemisphere, right? Mm-hmm. Mexico is just, oh, yeah, it's just Mexico. They're always like that. They're always like that. So we've normalized right. kind of really mass murder in Mexico, and we've heightened the real crisis in Venezuela to be something of operatic proportions, which is ridiculous. But it is bad, isn't it? It's bad, but, you know, I've been to Mexico and to Venezuela. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I've challenged intellectuals. All these people from, I mean, let me give you an example. I wrote a story about those families of the 43 who were disappeared. Oh, my God. You know, your parents, you know, think about it. Lose your kids. Those people are holding a cross until, and they don't care if the president, like Vicente Fox, says, you know, you need to just move on. Mm -hmm. Uh, No. They're going to stay on until they know what happened to their children, their babies. So I talked to some of those parents, and in that one town where they're, kids were disappeared Iguala right in the search if you may remember as, as a journalist and, and, and watchers of news and consumers of news you may remember there was oh here's one mass grave right here's another mass grave and it's and not them they found a dozen and it's not right. them yeah. so then this one town this one town in Mexico has more mass graves than all of Cuba mm. all of Ecuador all of Bolivia and all of Venezuela combined. Jeez. So if you want to, that's the country we live in. The media country that we live in is full of amnesia, lies, and State Department memos that tell journalists what they're going to write. Well, does it ever get frustrating for you? <laughs> as, a, as a journalist or as a writer? Frustrating is poco. <laughs> I wrote a story about a guy named Leopoldo Lopez. You'll see him in the news. He was just picked up, put in a car. I mean, the media is not telling us why he was picked up and whether he has a history of inciting violence, which I basically showed in my article of 6,000 words in foreign policy. In writing that piece, I knew that I was, as we say in uh, impolite Spanish that Salvadorans like to use, tocándole lo huevo al tigre, touching the bee of the tiger, the testicles of the tiger. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> so, so I knew that I was going to do that. You know, I, I didn't do it because I wanted that. Mm-hmm. I did it because I wanted to get at What's the some truth? some other truth besides the truth about you know the Venezuelan government is killing people, but so is the opposition. And that story isn't be so. In the process of writing that story, I got a death threat. I had a guy pull a gun. You put on yourself me. on people's radar. The guy pulled a gun on me and said, "O te vas por las buenas, o te quedas por las malas, or you stay, or you leave on good terms, or you stay on bad terms." Then after I came home. I get a call from Agent Mike Ranger of the U.S. State yeah, Department. Oh my God. Agent Mike Ranger says, hey, Mr. Lovato, we're concerned about your Safety. well-being. We heard you got a death threat. And I'm like, hey, that's great, but I didn't report this to the authorities. How do you know this? They knew the whole time. They knew somehow. Well, they're connected. They're connected. And then um, I got, you know, you know, there were threats to shut the piece down even before it was published by human rights lawyers and they were um, they just for the record Roberto just made air quotes <laughs> I play air guitar and air 
a lot of everything. So um, the the I also got like um, I had to I had the National Lawyers Guild and other lawyering and human rights organizations came to the defense of me and to of my story because they were going to close it down. They're going to censor it. Mm-hmm. Who's they? The people that support Ben Leopoldo okay. Lopez, mm-hmm. who's you know was mentioned in the Academy Awards in mm-hmm. 2014. Yeah, yeah. I remember you told me all this when I was I was. But I documented how there's this whole operation to prop him up through social media, through intermediaries in Hollywood who give a clueless mm-hmm. movie star like Jared Leto. His talking points about this guy. So you can make some window so dressing make, There's comments. people who specialize in this. I found this out. Mm-hmm. There's social media specialists. There's people. And they as court. one CIA, CIA, top CIA um, guy, former CIA guy, told me, yeah, we, our job was to help the media find its news. Interesting. <laughs> so, so, and at the end of that story, I got a hit piece on me in the Washington Post. Okay. They basically were trying to show me to be some sloppy pro-chavista mm-hmm. journalist when my facts were to remove your credibility were yeah they, they were fact checked by lawyers by um uh fact checkers somebody with a gun thought it was true enough yeah <laughs> so listen we're almost out of time but hearing all of this i have a question and, and it's it's probably not a happy question but so given you know who you are and where you've come from the work you've done so far Versus the obstacles that you face and the scale of the obstacles that you face, do you ever get to a point where it's just too much? I think that's a question we all have to ask ourselves. But I think my question, uh, sure, I'll ask that question of myself, but mm-hmm. certainly not on a world-changing scale. There's moments when, when, when it used to be too much in a certain way that was detrimental to my health. Mm-hmm. Now I'm an adult, I have agency in my own life, and I'm committed to my, to my health. And you so, can keep fighting the fight so regardless. I now have these automatic kind of pilots that go, uh, 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 take a break, mm-hmm. go to Sycamore Spa down in, you know, Southern California, <laughs> get in the hot tubs, go take a run, talk to a friend, you know. I guess what I'm getting at, though, is it's, can you continue your search to uncover the truth, even if at times it seems like there is no way that forces are going to let that truth be uncovered. Now, that's always been the case, though, in our time and in history. And so I feel less alone in my search for truth than I've ever felt in all years of seeing all these mass graves, of seeing all these fragmented pieces of bone, mm. of talking to, you know, mothers searching for their children, killed by death squads sponsored by the U.S., so at this stage of my life, I'm actually realizing that part of the levity I want to bring is the levity of not being alone. Why are you less alone now? Because we're talking about this when no. we would never talk about mm-hmm. this before. Mm-hmm. When people, that's why I say Donald Trump brings out the dark that's always been there in ways that Barack Obama covered up. Right, so well, that is an mm-hmm. interesting yeah, take. Yeah, that's a really yeah. interesting. I never. Take. I just look at Mexico. Mm-hmm. We're going to become aware now how destructive the United States has been in Mexico, thanks to Trump. Or look at immigration. People are now concerned about immigration. Well, Barack, everything, everything that Donald Trump is doing on immigration, John the Baptist, his John the Baptist on immigration was Barack <laughs> Obama. 
Um, yeah, I've read that. I've you read know, that it's before. like clear the instruments, the word, the framing, the focus on MS-13. That started with Obama, even before Obama, like in 2004. But what about so, the whole dreamer thing that Obama supported? Well, actually, yeah, Obama supported because his hand was forced. On August 11th, 2016, some people organized a uh, pro, pro, national protest against him. And even at that point, in Latina magazine, Obama says, I don't have the power to do mm-hmm. this executive order. And then a few days later, after those national protests and... They'd been getting hit in the Latino segment in in the run-up to the election, the re-elections. Okay, well, they found somehow this magical power suddenly. So I really think that's where that's where we need to put our our, our efforts. It's, it's not on the, the political game between Republican and Democrat. I, I really think at this point as a journalist or as a former activist, that's it's kind of a... It's a shell game? It's a shell game, and, mm-hmm. and I think... Um, we're thanks to climate change, especially it's a where it's a new day in, in in global politics. And again, this makes for why I don't feel alone. I go to Paris, I go to South America, I go all over the world as a journalist, and I see people thinking and feeling like I do, like I've never seen before. So, um, you know, I mean, you learn if you're in the dark long enough, you really learn to appreciate the light. <laughs> An optimistic rapper. We are unfortunately out of time. I have a feeling this could be a four-hour podcast, but then again, it's already 400 degrees in here. It'd be about 10,000 degrees after four hours. Roberto, uh, website, Twitter, how can Roberto people get hold? Don't Please don't look at the aesthetics. Just look at the writing. <laughs> I'm in the process of re, re, uh, rebuilding uh, my public image. But I'll tell you, he, <laughs> he, he has a, after, after my book, you know, I'm mm-hmm. working on a book, so I'm, that's my focus right now. Well, Roberto has a ton of links on there, too, to uh, really good work he's done. Mm-hmm. Uh, Twitter? Rob Vato. Rob Vato. Rob Vato. Nice. I like it. Uh, as for me, you can find me at that Larry Rosen, uh, Twitter and Instagram, uh, or if you want my other podcast, Is It Good for the Jews? Dot com, uh, the Grotto Pod itself. Remember, uh, you should be writing 500 words every night. I know I am. Please. Uh, no, Larry's writing like 1,500 to 3,000. It's a new thing. Isn't that psycho? Can um, I, no, actually, can I share? A, yes. Sure, oh, go please, for it, man. Share. Bring I it. discovered on YouTube Yeah. this method. I forget who it was that said it. Like one of those, like Patterson, one of these yeah. pop writers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Basically says, instead of writing, forcing yourself 500 a day or something, just give yourself a week. A week limit, like so, you could write 500 words a day, or, or 3,500 words one day. And That's actually words. more what, what or, uh, Bridget does, or 3,000 on Friday just before your deadline. Whatever, See, but as long as you get it I done. I think I need the repetition. Well, I found the secret to me writing every day is Bridget telling me I need to write every day. That was a. I you brought, need to copyright and, and yeah, it's a great method. I brought method. a little Catholic guilt to him. Anyway, so. long story short, uh, listeners, if you're doing, if you're having your experiences with 500 words a day, send it to us at uh, grottopod at gmail dot com or hit us on Twitter at the grottopod. BQ, how can they get a hold of you? Larry, they can get a hold of me at BQuintrest on Twitter or Instagram or at BridgetQuinnAuthor.com. And I would like to thank our producers, as always, Lee Kravitz, Beth Weingarner, and Lori Ann Doyle. Thanks, guys. Uh, and one last plea. Uh, why don't you go there to the old iTunes and give us some uh, five-star reviews yeah, and some uh, clever comments. 
Except if they're bad ones, just email the Grotto Book. <laughs> <laughs> and we'll take them under advisement. That is it for us this week. Sugar Town. That's Sugar our music. Town. Thank you for the music. Yep. Roberto, thanks for coming in. Fascinating. Oh, I'm no less so fascinated good. than I was before you sat down. So good. BQ, take us home. Friends, read, write, and be like Roberto and just keep working. Thank you.